Well, good evening. I'd love to welcome you to Metro, and if you're joining us via video, we are super, super duper glad that you're here, and if you're live in the room, we welcome you as well. Uh, we have been in this little series called The Tupperware Gospel, and I think if you are in uh, church, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're newer to this whole church thing, I think this is a great environment for you to be. I think this is a great place for you to ask spiritual questions about God, the Bible, about Jesus, about all of it. And so I really do, I think you are in the right sort of place. And, and like I said, we're in the middle of this series called The Tupperware Gospel, and we've been getting around this idea that uh, Christ, Jesus, isn't just with us, right? You, you think about this idea that we think God is with us, and it's true, God is with us, but he isn't just with us somewhere out there, but, but that he's in here. The Tupperware Gospel talks about how Christ is coming take up resonance within us. If we come to him in faith, if we put our trust in him, if we put our hope in him, that he has, he's in us. And let me tell you something. If you're a Christian and Christ is in you, this changes everything in the God-man relationship. Uh, this moves us from this external modification where it's all about obeying rules and about being religious and making sure we somehow fix up the outside of us. It changes all that to this internal modification, this internal transformation where Christ is at work in the deepest part of who we are. Amen? Y'all get that? You remember talking about this? And so when you think about this idea that Christ is in you, it, these are just like kind of pretty words. Uh, it's nice to think that way, but what does it really mean to have Christ in you, the hope of glory? Because if Christ is in you, it's the hope of anything good. It, it's the greatest pleasure, it's the greatest hope, it's the greatest peace that anybody could ever know. What does it mean to have that hope inside of you? Well, friends, let me tell you something. That happens when Christ is, let me tell you this, first and most in your life. When he's first and he's most. These aren't just nice words, but I'm serious. This transformation starts inside of us. This hope for glory, this hope for anything good inside of us, it starts when he is first and he is most in our life. When somehow or in some way we figure out how to move him up the scale and to move other things down the scale, it begins to change us on the inside out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody in the room can kind of sense this a little bit? Uh, let me tell you, this is a real struggle to figure out who's on first. It really is. It's a big struggle to figure out how to put Christ first. And so if you could just humor me just for a moment, just humor me just for a moment, I, I want to show you a, a video clip. Um, th this video clip was, this, it's one of the greatest pieces of live uh, comedy you'll ever see. It is incredible. It really is. It was originally put out in 1937 by Abbott and Costello. Maybe you know which one I'm talking about, right? This is literally one of the most famous bits of, uh, of uh, onstage comedy that the world has ever seen. And, and it's incredible. And, and it was, the film I'm about to show you is filmed in the early 40s. And it is simply incredible. Check this out. We'll just pretend that uh, we're organizing a baseball team here at the retired actors' home. And I am the manager. Now, you're going to be the manager of the retired actors' baseball team? Yes. I would like to join the retired actors' baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I'll know them, and I'll meet them on the street or in the home here, I can say hello to them. Oh, sure. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. I know, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Stick Fields. Sticky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Bobber. Booby Bobber. I know. 
<laughs> well, let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You ain't said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's I'll... names on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm, not... I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> That's his name. You ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base? Sure. Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me now, for? Don't get excited. I'm saying who... I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> yeah. I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Don't mix up my... I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking... <laughs> get on third base. You mentioned his name. I mentioned his name. Yes. I don't know anybody's name on the team. I, uh, how could I mention a guy's name? You did. You just mentioned it. All right. What's the guy's name on third base? No, what's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's on first. You ready? I didn't even mention a guy's name on third base. Yes, you did. All right, then. Who's playing third base? No, who's on first? I'm not asking you what's on first. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's third base. Third base. Third base. I don't know anybody on a baseball team. You do. You mention their name. I don't care how old that is. That is literally one of the funniest pieces ever. It really is. And you should go back and watch the whole thing because it, it gets even better. Uh, but they, they keep coming back to this question, who's on first? And the question for us when it comes to matters of faith is who is first? Who's first in you? Where, where are you banking your eternity? What's rising to the top of your life? What's the greatest pursuit? Who is the greatest pursuit of your life? You know, we talk about Jesus being first, but the question is, is who is really first in your life? Is Jesus really first, and is he really most in your life? And so what we've been doing is we've been in this kind of old-fashioned, old-school-style Bible study. And I'm not so sure that this is hip anymore, but what we did was we just wanted to pick a book in the Bible. We wanted to start at the beginning and kind of work our way through. And I hope that's been okay for you, but that's what we're doing. We're just kind of plowing through the book of Colossians. And, and one of the things that you need to know as we kind of dive into this, maybe you missed this early on, is that the book of Colossians is really just a letter that a pastor wrote. Paul, one of the great leaders in the Christian church, he wrote to this to this church that gathered in the Roman city called Colossae. And, and, and it was a church that was not very different than our church. It was in a mid-sized town, a hustle and bustle kind of community. And, and there were a bunch of these new Christians and younger Christians, and some were a little bit more mature, and they were gathered together, and they were trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And, and so Paul is writing to them this letter, trying to teach them what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have a big Jesus and a small re religion? And so as we've been moving through this, Paul is trying to recalibrate their thinking because uh, 
if you were here the, you know, the first couple of weeks, you, you might remember that uh, we talked about how uh, th- there were these f- teachers that came along to this church. The, and the Bible calls these men and, and women false teachers. And, and they started to teach at the church of Colossae, the, the, the church of the Colossians, and they start telling them, no, 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 what you need is this intellectual relationship with, with God through Jesus. And, and you could have Jesus, Jesus is cool, but all you need to know is about him, and you need to have this like knowledge of the mysterious things of life. And, and they started to elevate all kinds of changes. They started to take the church away from a big Jesus, and they started to create a big religion. They, they, they started to say things like, you need to celebrate certain days of the year and that would make you right with God. You needed to have certain sacrifices and certain rituals and dress a certain way and sing certain songs and, and that would make you right with God. And, and, and think about this, they were saying that all you have to do is know the right things and you'll be right with God. Now try that with your wife. Try that with your wife. What, what if you were to say to your wife, you were to say, honey, I think about you. I have all kinds of knowledge about you. It's not like we have to actually hang out. It's not like we have to do anything together. It's not like I have to be emotionally attached. I know about you. We're, we're like, you know, I, I have knowledge and special understanding about you. We don't need to spend much time together. We don't need to be emotionally bonded or intimacy, right? We don't need that. How would that go over with the lady folk? You know, like, hey, honey, I, uh, I set aside two, three, four days a year for you. Sweet. Sweet. It'd be special. Come on. Well, what would our wives say? What would our ladies say? What would our daughters say? They would say, you're crazy. It just doesn't work like that. It just simply wouldn't go over. And so Paul, he comes along, and you may remember this. He, he says it doesn't work that way because Christ is supposed to be center of everything. And so we're going to use this big old cross here, and this is going to represent Paul's message. So Paul comes along, and he says the whole gospel message is centered around the cross of Christ. And if you know Christ, you'll be made right with God. If you know Christ, change will happen from the inside outward inside it, right? From the inside out. He says, it is about Christ and Christ crucified that he paid this price of forgiveness for us. He, he established our relationship with God. And if you focus on who? Christ. Then boy, it'll be, it'll go good for you and it will go good for the, for the church you're part of. You need to stay focused on here, but here's the problem. These religious People came along and, and they were called Gnostics, right? And they started to change the game for the church. They started to infiltrate their way in. And, and much like we even see in the world around us today, they tried to lower the name of Jesus. They tried to, tried to say, oh, just let's just talk about a God who's out there somewhere. As long as you're spiritually minded, you'll be okay. And so what they started to do is they took the cross and they started to move it right off to the side, right? And they put it way over by the edge of the stage. And they said, let's put other things here in the middle. Let's sing some songs that make us feel good. Beatles, come together. Let's sing that, right? Let's, let's, let's read some authors that make you feel good. Let's even get around some teachers and preachers and let's elevate them and let's clap and cheer for them and throw them all kinds of money. Let's lift them up instead of who? Instead of Jesus. 
And so they started to shift. They started to take the church and move, them, move it away from this intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. They said the head knowledge about Jesus was enough. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you want a faith that is real, if you want a faith that is vibrant and growing, you need a little religion and a big Jesus. You need to shift this thing all back to where it started. You need the cross. Listen, he says, you need to take this cross that's been put off to the side in so many churches. And you see this in our world. He says, you take the cross and you put it right back where it belongs. And you keep it there. You keep Jesus in the middle of everything that you do. And so this is what Paul starts to get around. A big Jesus and a small religion, a big Jesus and a little religion. And if you were here, uh, the last time we talked about the Tupperware gospel, we, we went through verses 13 through 17 in the very first chapter. Remember this? And we started to paint this portrait, this picture of a big Jesus. Remember Paul says that Jesus is at the center of creation, that he is the creator, that he was with God in the beginning, that he was, uh, that he's preeminent, that he is uh, the, the one that all of life hinges on. Do y'all remember talking about this? That he holds our lives together, just like he holds the universe together. And so Paul begins to paint this picture of, hey, don't forget about the Jesus that you're following, what he has done for us and for the world. You keep a big, big Jesus in mind. And so today, um, we're going to go crazy. We're just going to land on one verse, just one verse in the Bible. Uh, and I promise we'll go a little faster other weeks, but we just need to land at this one little verse. And it's verse 18. I just want to read it to you. I just want to read it. And it starts off like this. It says, and he, that's Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the what? From among the dead. And so that in everything he might have the supremacy and so what does it mean to be the head of the church? And you remember last week that we talked about how Christ was the head of creation, that he was at the start of creation, and he has this uh, relationship with God that God called him the firstborn of creation. Y'all remember this? The idea of firstborn of creation? And, and, and if you were here, you remember that we talked about the idea that in ancient times when they referred to somebody as the firstborn, it wasn't a chronological birth thing. It was a place of eminence. It was a place of power. It was a place of authority. It was saying that you were first and, a, and, and the greatest of all, right? That you held the highest position and the high, highest regard in, in the world, right? And so that was Jesus. And so now Paul makes this little shift. He, he, he reminds him that not only is he is the, he's the firstborn of all creation, but he says this crazy line. He says he is the firstborn among the What? Among the dead. And that, that's kind of a weird little thing, isn't it? But friends, I want you to understand something. That this line, the firstborn from the dead, uh, he, he's talking about the, the spirit world. He, he's talking about uh, essentially this, this, those of us who have this relationship with God, who have been spiritually reborn, who have come back from the dead. Friends, listen. This reference is directly about us. It's about you and me. The firstborn for those who have been recreated, for those who have been given a new life, a second birth. The Bible calls it born a, come on, again. 
And so Paul is referencing this spiritual understanding that when we come to Christ, that we come alive in Christ, when, when he comes and he takes up residence inside of us, something starts to come alive. Something is birthed and rebirthed inside of us. And so he makes this statement that, that Christ is the firstborn, the greatest, the, the, that ought to have preeminence in the lives of those who are born again, that are those that are from the dead. That would be us, that Christ ought to have this position, right? And so I want you, want you to think about this. He says, the Bible tells us that he is in you, and because he is in you, he has this first place inside of you, that he has this preeminence inside of you, and, and the church, that he's the head of this thing called the church and the body of Christ. And I want you to think about Metro just for a second. Metro City Church is a local community of those who are from the dead. Tweet that. Right? How weird is that? But that's what it says, is that we're a local church that, that is gathered together because there's something inside of us that is changing, that is growing, that, that is being resurrected in us, that we're from the dead. And I want to think about the church a little bit because he says, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, which is the church. And this language is so important. Now we're going to study the Bible here. We got to understand what this means for us. I want you to think about the church for a second. The church is something that ought to be utterly different than everything else in the entire world. Think about what ought to be among us. Think about what ought to be different and special for those of us who say we're part of the body, the church. We're, we're, the church is quite different than any other organization among men. At least it ought to be. Amen? It ought to be different. It is a place where, where everyone is wanted and welcomed. It is a place where color and status and education and past experiences and family history ought not to matter. Where the doors are wide open for people to come and find the same new life that you and I have, have found. Am I right? That's the kind of place it ought to be, friends. And so many times it's not. Listen, the church ought not to be a business. The church doesn't exist to make a profit. It shouldn't be in existence to somehow make the preacher rich that we see all the time. It shouldn't be that way at all. As a matter of fact, listen, the exact opposite is, is true. Like in this place, we spend money on people and things to advance the cause of Christ without even any thought to whether or not they're going to reap a financial return to us. That is not how you run a business at all. But that is how you run a church. Now, obviously, wise with the money, careful with the money, all that. But we do not invest to make a profit. We invest to change lives. It's totally different. Amen? I want you to think about the church. The church is almost completely a volunteer organization where people serve sacrificially, and not just for a day, but for a lifetime. Some of you are crazy. Week after week after week, because what Christ has done in you, you say, I'm not, I'm not like earning anything. I'm just paying back a debt, what Christ has done in me, and that's why I serve. Amen. You're just going like, of course I'll serve. It's natural to serve because Jesus was a servant. He said, I came to serve, not to be fed, not to be taken care of, not to be pampered. He said, I've come to serve. And so those of us in this room who are trying to follow Christ, we just go, of course we serve. And here's what's even crazier about you Christians. Not only do you serve and that you give constantly of your time, your time, but you open your wallet and you resource it. You pay for it. You say, of course I'm going to invest in this because this changes lives. It brings people back from the 
from the dead. And that's what it ought to be about. The church exists as, as God's redemption center for humanity. That's what happened to me. That's what happened in some of, some of you. Is that God, because of the cross, reached into your life. And he changed it. He reformed it. He redeemed it. He took you from one place to another place, from one kingdom to another kingdom, from light to darkness. Friends, the, the church ought to be a place where God's grace runs deep and where it is normal for people who have been redeemed to sacrifice and to give and to give relentlessly. But, but friends, let me tell you something. This concept is lost in many Christians and in many churches. It's lost in modern churches like ours and it's lost in traditional churches. It really is a lost concept of what the church ought to really be about. Because when I look around, even in our own little church, I can't help but notice that the way people think of church life, I'm afraid that there is this like, most widespread concept of church is that church is like this religious kind of a country club thing operated for the enjoyment of the insiders. It's operated for the enjoyment of the members and that somehow all of the rules and all of the programs and all of the things ought to exist to somehow bring comfort to our lives. Friends, I see this in our own little church. We come expecting that the bathrooms are clean. We come expecting that we have teen programs to help our families or children programs to help our families or recovery programs to help us or to have life groups that are running and up and running so that we can find these social connections. And friends, it's like we've, we've come to expect like there is this country club mentality. And friends, is what I hear, even from our little church, as long as my needs are being met, then I'm in. As long as it's good, then I'm in. As long as I can come and sit in these little chairs and there's air conditioning and there's heat and there are bathrooms and there's a you know, good band, then I'm in. And friends, I don't see that as the picture of the church at all in the scriptures, at all. And so the scriptures come, come along and it declares that Christ is the head of the church. I think that's one of the most important statements in the entire New Testament part of the Bible, that Christ is the head of the church. He gives us this illustration to kind of carry around with us a little bit to figure out how the church ought to function. The church is the body. We're all who are part of the church. We're part of the body of Christ. Have you heard this before? Have you heard this before? Uh, the, the church, we, me and you, we're the body and Christ is the head. And to understand this, he, he tells us, look at your own body, see how it functions. Now, if you were to stand in front of the mirror, you, you would see that your body has two parts to it. The top part, and that's your melon, right? Uh, that's that little orb up on top. Some of it's a little balder than the others, you know, but, uh, but, but yeah, sorry, Chuck. Uh, but, but here's the deal. Uh, there's this top part of you, and let me tell you something. Then there's this lower part of you called the body, and it's up here that tells this what to do. It's up here that influences the direction of all of this. Am I right? At least that's how it's supposed to work. Is that up here we're thinking about life and we're deciding which direction our life is supposed to go. And God comes along and says, this is the same thing in the church. That there's a head and then there's the body. And the head has the right to tell the body what to do and what to become and, and which direction to go. And many, many Christians seem to forget that this is true of our spiritual lives and of our own church. 
that Christ is the head, that he sets the direction for who we are. And if you remove the head from the body, you are in trouble, right? Now, it doesn't appear that many of you have had this experience of removing your head from your body, at least physically. Uh, but I grew up in this city called Westland, Michigan. And it was a city, and it was a city type of neighborhood I lived in. And uh, I think we lived next to the Adams family or something because they were just crazy weird people. And here they are, we're in the middle of the city and they were raising turkeys in their backyard. And turkeys smell, I don't know if you know that, but they do, just a little side note, they just smell. And, and they're crazy and they're loud and they're everywhere and, and they're taking over the place, right? And, and so this family is raising these turkeys and when I was a kid, uh, you know, you kind of become attached to those little guys. You know, every day I kind of went over and thought they were my pets, which is so cool because I didn't have to take care of them and this is awesome and they're somebody else's, but they were mine, you know? And it was awesome until I realized one day that Thanksgiving was coming. And then all of a sudden, the neighbor guy, he comes out and uh, he, he tells me that they're going to eat these turkeys for Thanksgiving. And I was mortified. I was like, what? How can you do this, right? And so what he does is he takes this like log, like this giant chopping block, and he literally puts it out. And I sat there and watched as a kid. I don't know why my parents, you know, subjected me to this. But, but I remember the guy takes these giant old turkeys, and he takes their, his body, and he puts his body over part of the turkey body, and he yanks their neck off, like not off, but like stretches their neck out, and he takes this ax and literally just, yeah, he chops off their head. It's crazy. And I'm like going, oh, you know, like what in the world's going on here? And what was even crazier is when, the, when the, the head was separated from the body, the turkey didn't just die. Have you ever seen something like this? The guy had to get out of the way because blood was flying everywhere and the turkey was going crazy. Like the body of the turkey was like running around like, like crazy man without a head. And it was like going ah, everywhere. And it was just going crazy. And there's an old saying, don't go crazy. Don't run around like a fool. Don't run around like a chicken with your head cut off. And that's why, because they act like a fool. They act like they're crazy. And God comes along and giving us this word. It says that, that, that uh, the head of the church is Christ. And the moment the church is separated from Christ, things go crazy. They go out of control. And it's just true, friends. If you look at some entire churches and entire denominations, have been, they have leaders, but they have lost their head, literally. They've gone out of their mind. And they're involved with things that they should not be involved with. They're endorsing things that they should never endorse. And they have separated themselves from God's holy word. They really have. And, and, and they have people who are in charge. They got men and women who are in charge. But Christ is no longer in charge. And you know what the problem is? Is when somebody or a man or a woman is in charge of something, if it's not anchored to the real head, who is Christ, you, you want to know what the problem is? Is that men and women can fail. Men and women can change their minds. Men and women, their hearts can move away from the very thing that God has called them to and the very nature of what the scriptures teach us. And friends, it is true and it happens all the time. And so Paul comes along and he says, don't get separated from your head. A little side note, it's kind of weird. My, uh, my wife said when she was a kid, like a, a you know, young girl, uh, her parents got her this doll. And uh, she said she could take the head of the doll and rip it off and it was still attached like with this little string. And when she ripped it off, the doll would say, oops, I lost my head. What kind of parent would give a daughter that? I don't understand it. I just, 
that's crazy to me. But that's exactly what's happened is we go, oops, we've lost our head. And, and this is the trouble with the church at Colossae. Paul was saying, you guys are losing your head. You're getting away from Jesus. And why is this so important? Because if you lose Jesus, if you lose who's in charge, you eventually have the body that goes crazy. You have a body that brings all kinds of junk in. And you have a body that falls apart. And you have a body that loses its focus and loses its mission, right? Friends, uh, let me tell you something. I am not the head of this church. I'm one of the leaders in this church. But Christ is the head of this church. And if I ever get off, if I ever get off Christ, you have an elder team that will remove me immediately because I am not the head. Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? Amen. Now let me tell you something. Uh, Metro could never become a, a social club. A member, a member uh, Metro can never become just this place where, where we are just trying to take care of ourselves, where we lose our, our mission. And, and let me just, I just need to put this out there. I just need to give you a little example of how this can happen in our own little church. You see, we built, as a church, we built a gymnasium and we built a massive playscape at our other campus. We did. And the vision right from the very beginning was that our hope was is that the, the community would come in, that lost people who are outside of the church who don't know Jesus would come in and that they would come in by the hundreds. And let me tell you something, they have, which is awesome, which is exactly what we want, right? But let me tell you something, we did not build a gym and a playscape just so people in our church, like our, my little family, could go play. I hope they go play. But that's not why we built it. And let me tell you something else. We did not just build it so that people outside could come in and just play. I hope they come in and play, but that is not why we built it. We built it so that you and me, the body, would follow the head's command to go and make disciples, to go and reach people, to go and care for lost people, that we would go and meet them and begin to build relationships with them, and that we would welcome them not only to our stupid playscape, but that we would welcome them into these seats and into our lives and into our homes so that we could introduce them to Jesus. That is the goal. That is the goal. And so let me tell you something, friends. And I know I'm... I know I'm stepping out on, on, out on this a little bit. But it drives me crazy that I have to beg for people to come in to host. Simply to put their hand out and welcome people into our building and eventually invite them to our church. That makes no sense to me. My guess is that there are hundreds in our community that have the ability to say, hello, and that could be kind to a stranger that could take an hour or two a month to do this. And it makes no sense that we are missing this incredible opportunity with thousands and thousands of people a month coming through our doors. And so friends, let me tell you something. If, if together, if we feel that there is a better way to reach lost people and to get them into our building and into our lives, then I am all for taking the playscape down and shutting the gym down and wrecking the whole thing and figuring out another plan. Because we are not in the restaurant business. We are in the Jesus business. 
Y'all with me on this? Okay, Pastor Jay, you probably should move along. We're running out of time. And there's something else about this whole idea that Jesus is the head of the body. He is not just the head of us together. He is your head. He is your leader. He is my leader. He is my family's leader. I must learn how to follow him. This is an individualized thing as well. That it, it just isn't like, oh, the church needs to stay focused and stay on because I'm not going to be part of a church that's off the deep end. But your life is off the deep end. We need to follow Jesus individually. I need to, and, and let me tell you something, you need to. Um, Christ's body was designed that every part is connected to the head, each individually directed by the head and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. Um, this happens not just when we come together as a church. We come together on the weekends like this to get revamped, to get recharged, to get fired up, to get refocused, to get challenged a little bit. But this means that out there, away from the weekend experience, we live out our faith where we work, where we shop, where we play, where the world around us, where our neighbors, where our family look at us and go, those people are just crazy weird. But I like it. Because I don't see people loving like them and caring like them and being compassionate like them. There's something different inside of them that I like. Friends, that is the call for every single one of us. It says, in everything, Christ ought to have supremacy. Who's on first? Who's on first? Who's on first? Who is first in your life? That's the question. That's the question. Who's first and who's most? And so Paul says, in everything, Christ ought to have supremacy. That literally means that he is supreme, that he is first and he is most. Paul is saying that the church and thus individual Christ followers within the church are made complete in Christ, that he is, he is supreme to everything else, that he is superior to everything else. It, it, he's saying that the church and thus you don't need the church plus, you know, Eastern meditation. The church doesn't need or you don't need the church and Christ plus a good song. It doesn't mean that you need, oh, Christ and a really good preacher that motivates me. It doesn't mean that you need Christ plus, uh, you know, some, some book off the latest shelf that, you know, can kind of help you be a better you. What it means is that you find your completeness in Christ. That he is first and he is most, that he is the object of your heart, that he is the object of your attention, that he is the object of your affections, that your life is continually moving toward him. That's what it means. Not him and a whole bunch of other stuff. Him and him alone. What, what the church needs and what our church needs is for a whole bunch of individuals in the body to be completely surrendered to him to literally give their lives over to him. And it doesn't mean that we get it all right. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that like the things I struggled with for the last five years are just gonna instantly go away. It's not saying that. It is saying that you're laying it all before him and that you are an open book before him. That he is your head, that he is your leader and that you will do what you can to know him more, to love him more and to follow him more. And, and so friends, um, 
my guess is that there's a whole bunch of people in this room who are going, well, yeah, I agree with all that. Jesus is like, yeah, he, he should be the head of the church and he should be first and he should be first in people's lives who claim to be Christians. Most of us in this room who claim to be a Christian would agree with that kind of thinking and that kind of statement. But I need to ask, is, that, is this what we are really practicing? Is this what we're really about? I mean, every once in a while, we just have to sit back and do some self-analysis because we have to ask this question, is he really the head of our lives? Is he really first and most? Is he really supreme? Because if, if Christ is everything to us, why is, I mean, just, why is worship in this kind of environment so unimportant to so many of us? Where we can come maybe one, two times a month and think somehow we've engaged in a worship experience toward the God of heaven. Why is it so unimportant? Why does everything else seem to be moved around if I can fit church in? If we are the church, if that's you and that's me, if we are the church, why isn't this more central to our lives? Friends, if we're the church and he is ahead of the church and we're the body and he's the head of the body, then, then why do so few of us participate regularly in life groups? where the scripture clearly defines that we need each other to hold us accountable and to encourage our faith. Where this big thing needs to go small and you need to have some people in your life that can push you forward. If, if, if Christ is the head of the body and you're the body, then why do so few of us show up to our next step sessions where we study the Bible together? Why? Friends, if, if, the, if, if he's the head of the body and you're the body, then why is, why is the church always so broke? Literally, why is our church so broke? And why do finances seem like they're such a low priority when it comes to the kingdom of God in our lives? I don't understand it. If the church is the, is, the head of the church is Christ and, and the head of the body is, is Christ and you're the body, then, then why do we have to almost beg for us to get out of these seats and serve his kingdom in this world. Friends, I, I just don't get it. If we say we believe this, then it should matter in our lives. Amen? Amen? Yeah, some of you will be looking for a new church next week, I bet. Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm just asking this question I'm not trying to put my finger down. I'm not trying to condemn anybody, knock anybody down. But, but, you know, friends, I get what people say. They say, wait a minute, preacher man. Like, we have lives and we're busy and, you know, we got bills to pay. I get all that. I am the same as you. I still work in the marketplace for crying out loud. I get this. I led this church for the first 10 years uh, re receiving nothing from this church. I, I'm with you. I completely understand the stresses of everyday life. I get it. But if this means anything to us, we have to reorganize who we are. We have to reorganize our lives. We have to reorganize our wallets. We have to reorganize our time, our schedules, everything to get around the headship of, of Jesus, to build his kingdom, to be part of what God is doing on earth. Is he really preeminent in my life? And me and Lynette, is he preeminent in our lives? Friends, you gotta ask that question. I'm just asking. I'm not trying to beat up anybody. I'm just asking the questions. There, there is this 
passage that Paul speaks of in another book. It's the book of the Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, li- listen to this. And if you're not a Christian, uh, or if maybe you're uh, kind of like a Christian, but you're, you haven't really decided to make room for Christ in your life, um, listen to what he invites you to. L- listen to this. Listen, listen. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 12. It says, we pleaded with you. And I feel like Paul here, you know, he goes, I pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider, what's this word? Worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of what? Worthy of this. Worthy of his sacrifice. Worthy of what he has done for us. He says, live a life, if you believe it, live a life worthy of that. And then listen to what he says. For he called you to share in his kingdom and in his glory. There's no greater joy. The hope of glory is right here. The hope of making anything good out of our life is found in Jesus, the head. And we gotta somehow figure out how to get around this. And so what does it mean? Um, people ask me a lot, and I just want to take a stab at it. And I don't know that I know the right answer exactly. But people say, what does it mean to live with Christ being first? How do you put God first in your life? I just wrote a couple thoughts down. It means that you make God's agenda your agenda. It means that you make God's will and desire your will and your desire. You care about what God cares about. Whatever you want God to bless in your life with his presence and his power, put him first in that area. Give it totally to him. This is what it means to follow him completely, to to be first. And and so what I want to do is, this is really old school, almost embarrassing, almost embarrassing. I want to give you an acronym. I never do this. I'm not a good speller. I can't get all that stuff right, okay? Listen. Uh, I heard this from a pastor named Rick Warren, and I remember this from years and years and years ago. And I just want to teach this to you. Rick was asked the same question. Um, How do you put God first? And so he came up with this little acronym with the F-I-R-S-T, first. And he says, well, to put God first, let's start with F. He says, you need to put God first in your finances. F is for finances, and people go, oh, right there, there's the preacher. Listen, you know what? I, I, I want to make an apology to you. I don't talk enough about finances around here. Matter of fact, I can't even hardly remember the last time we talked about finances. But this is a very basic thing. There's a principle that Jesus gave us. He says, where your treasure is, guess what? Your heart will follow. You want to know what somebody cares about? Look at where they spend their money. You want to know where their life is going? Follow the trail of the money. It's very, very simple. This is basic Christianity. Oh, no, this is for spiritual giants who can really get it together. And no, no, this is something very early on in your Christian life that you should say, he has changed me. He has all of me. He is first and he is most in every single area of my life. And some people, I get it because I've been there before. You're like going, I am totally broke. I don't have two cents to rub together. Then you know what? You should start with like five bucks in the offering. You really should, just something. Because you should be saying to God, God, I need you in this area of my life. I need help in this area of my life. But I also realize that you're first in this area above anything else. And so five bucks, 
If you're young, if you're a teenager, a college kid in this room, it's amazing in our, our little church here, very little comes back from the people we give hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to to reach. And I don't get that as a teenager, as a young adult. You should go, here's a dollar because God, you are first in my life. I don't have a lot, but what I have, I give to you. I put you first. So F is for finances, make sense? And the I, Rick says, is for, um, the I is, is for interest. Put him first in your hobbies, your careers, uh, your career, your recreation. Give God first consideration in every decision. We, we think uh, uh, just because we can do something, we should do that something. Do you hear me? Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you actually should be doing that something. Right? Just because you enjoy something doesn't really mean that you should be doing that something or even enjoying that something. I'm just suggesting that we offer all of our life to God, including our hobbies. And there's nothing wrong with hobbies. There's nothing wrong with God-honoring hobbies unless those God-honoring hobbies no longer honor God because they take you away from him and they become more than him. They become higher than him in your life. They become a greater pursuit. I mean, there are people who spend more time on video games than they've ever had in the Bible. There's more time spent watching a basketball game or a football game or a cooking show or a house flipping show or whatever than ever trying to find out who God is. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if he's gonna be first and he's gonna be most in your life, you need to ask God for every activity of your life, every interest in your life. God, should this be part of who I am? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I, I just think that maybe if we're going to follow Christ, I, I just want to challenge you with this. Um, something that I try to do every once in a while is I say, God, give me your heart for the world. Give me your desire for the world. God, plant your interest inside of me. Because by nature, I'm sinful. By nature, I am not like Christ. I got to ask him to put this inside of me. And so do you. But I warn you though, I wouldn't go praying a prayer like that unless you really want to change something in your life. So if you don't want to change anything, don't pray a prayer like that. Because God will put his spirit inside of you if you invite him. He will. Here's, so F is for finances, I is for interest, and R is for relationships. I'm going to tell you something, friends. Put him first in your family, in your homes, in your marriages, in your friendships, in your relationships. Putting him first for so many of us means just starting by putting him into the relationship. Hello. Y'all hear me on this? Because sometimes we have all these relationships and we go, oh, I'm a Christian, but nobody in any of your relationships even know it. Maybe the first step is to have him lord over your relationships is actually just to put him into your relationships. Some of us, we want to have God first in our lives, but our lives are sexually a mess. We are sexually against God's will and away from God's will. And we say, God, I want you to honor me. I want you to honor me. But we don't care at all what God has to say about how we manage our sexual relationships. Now, how, how is a heavenly father, a loving heavenly father supposed to honor his child when you are purposefully rebelling against him? Is it possible? I'm not so sure. Our families, our homes, putting Christ in the middle of it. Dads in this room, we should be introducing the gospel on a daily level into our home. Moms, daily level, 
introducing the gospel to our homes, purposefully speaking about Jesus in our homes. Uh, so many of our relationships at work and at play, our neighbors, uh, we say we're a Christian. They hear us say we're a Christian, but they look at us and they go, you don't look like a Christian because I've heard about Jesus. And I know what Jesus is like, and you're not that. Friends, something has to change. He needs to be first in our life. Finances, interest, relationships. And here's the next one. This one is uh, whew, probably going to get me in trouble, but it's the schedule. It's the schedule, right? Uh, this means that you give him the first part of every day. I think it's just a very, I'm not a morning person, but when I get out of bed, it takes me like an hour and a half. But, uh, but when I get out of bed, it's like, uh, I say, God, I just, I just want to know you today. Simple prayer. I'm not a morning devotional person. That's my wife. I'm like the nighttime guy, you know? But I just say, God, I just want to know you better today. I want to love you today. Help me, God, to be led by your spirit today. For those of us who want to follow Christ, he's got to be first on our schedule, starting the day, just with a simple talk like that with God. Something very, very simple. Um, church should be part of your schedule. I mean, it really should be part of your schedule. You know, my kids are into a million different things and, you know, all the things in the, you know, have crept into Sunday mornings and Saturday night. You know how it is now, right? It's just, it's everywhere, right? You can't, there's no Sunday morning church time anymore. And in our home, listen, when those schedules just creep up like that, we just say there's already something on the schedule. There's already something there and he is first and he is most in our life. We will serve this church. We will love this church. We will grow from this church. We will worship with this church. We will give to this church. It matters to our family. And Christians in this room, it should be on your schedule to be part of the bride of Christ. And while I'm offending you, I might as well say what I really think. You should serve. There is no excuse. I'm sorry. If Jesus, if this matters to you at all, then it seems obvious that you should serve. That you should be like the one who served us by dying for us and giving his life up for us. It should be part of who we are, using our gifts and our talents, the very breath that he has for us. And we should find a little slice in the, in the body of Christ to somehow serve it, to advance the kingdom of God. And yes, it means changing our schedules. It means moving things around. It means saying no to certain things so you can say yes to bigger and more eternal things. Amen. Amen. Last one I think is this, F-I-R-S-T. We need to put him first in troubles and our temptations. Yeah. You know, it's funny how, I mean, everybody has troubles but we run. Everybody runs to something. Alcohol, bars, women, men, sports. We all have troubles. We all have temptations. And the very first place to run should be to God himself, your heavenly father. If you want, if you want him to be first in your, in your life, if you want to grow this thing called faith inside of you, then run to him, turn to him with your troubles. And, and when these things called temptations come, you need to fight them with all the strength God gives you because he is in you. 
He gives you the hope of glory. He gives you grace to move beyond where you were. There, there, there needs to be this point in our life where we go, I am going to wrestle this thing down to the ground with the help of my heavenly Father and the Spirit of God that takes up resonance within me. And we should do this on purpose in our life. We have Renew for this. We have life groups for this. We do pastoral counseling for this. We do mentoring for this. We need to turn to God first in our life for the hope of glory, for the hope of anything good. Jesus said it like this. Seek first. Anybody know this? The kingdom of God and all the things that you seek will be added unto you. You seek him first. You seek him first and let God do his work in you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, in this room, we take just a moment. Um, my hope is, is that uh, nobody here would feel beat up or picked on or a finger pointed on because I am starting by talking to myself. Um, God, I, I pray that your word, as we move through your word, that your word would change us. Um, God, I cannot say anything convincing but your spirit can move inside of us and change us and grow us. God, I want us to be a powerful church that reaches our community. God, I want us to be a, a church that is effective and that really truly uh, resembles your heart in the world right around us. God, I don't want to lose our mission. I don't want to get off course. I don't want to compromise. And God, we need to do this together. So I pray that you would be Lord over our church. You are the head of our church. And you are the head of us. I pray that your spirit would speak, oh God. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Y'all good? Amen.